feeling pain. It is an unquenchable, unquenchable fervor in hell, a desire that we cannot uh, attain. And it is also a place of forgotten names. Nothing about hell is anything that we want to be a part of. It's something that we want to avoid at all costs. We spoke this morning and mentioned that the uh, a motivating factor such as fear is absolutely something that is healthy for us. It's healthy to fear certain things in this life. We fear dangerous animals. We fear dangerous situations. We fear a whole lot of things that are dangerous to us. And, and that happens for a reason. God has instilled that in us. To be aware of dangers and to avoid them. But we noticed this morning, the first point that we spoke of, was that hell is a place of terror. Now the second point we're going to notice about hell is it's not just a place of terror, it's a place that is timeless. There is no time in hell. In other words, hell does not end. In the timeless misery of hell, there is no departure from that. Once a person has been punished with uh, being in hell eternally, that is exactly where they will be eternally. Dante wrote of hell's eternal gates in the inferno. He said this, I am the way to the city of woe. I am the way to a forsaken people. I am the way into eternal sorrow. Sacred justice moved my architect. I was raised here by divine omnipotence. Primordial love and ultimate intellect. Only those elements that cannot wear were made before me, and beyond time I stand. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Most people in the world do not want to believe in an eternal hell. That's just the way it is. That's the belief that most people want to have. U.S. Catholic Magazine asked its readers what they thought about the afterlife. Well, the article concluded that the old hellfire and brimstone idea seems to be on its way out, being replaced by the idea of hell as an absence of God. Well, in one aspect, that is true. Hell is a separation from God, but that means more than what these people would like for it to mean. Hell means that we're not going to be in the presence of the omnipresent God. Now, now think about that. God is omnipresent, isn't He? We read about that in the Scripture. Psalm 139, 7 through 12 explains to us we can't get away from God. There's no depth deep enough. There's no mountain high enough. There's nowhere we can go to get away from God. He is everywhere at all times. Jonah learned that the hard way, didn't he? He tried to escape the presence of God and it did not work. And it will never work. But there is one place He is not. He is not in Gehenna. He's not in hell. He's not in the place for the lost soul. Then shall He say unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, Matthew 25, 41. Absolutely, hell is a place where we will be absent from God. The wicked will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory 
of His power, 2 Thessalonians 1.9. Hell is a place where we will never cast our eyes upon the face of God. The loving father waited for the prodigal, didn't he? He waited for the prodigal son to come home. The father today rushes to meet the prodigals who would come home this time. In our present world, he still waits for that. He waits at the, at the beginning of the road that leads from the far country. He's doing that today. But in hell, there are no roads home. In hell, the Father does not stand at the front window looking longingly down the road for a familiar figure who He knows is lost, who He longs to come home and be saved once again. Why? Because there is this great gulf that has been fixed. Those who are in hell cannot leave hell. They cannot return from there, Luke 16, 26, but it is a place that the all-present God Himself chooses not to traverse. He won't be there. Catholic magazine was correct. It is a place absent of God. But it is still a place of fire and brimstone because it's a place of terror. We noticed that this morning. Erwin Lutzer observed this. He said, Hell, more than any doctrine of the Bible, seems to be out of step with our times. Well, I agree with him. But it's not the Bible's fault. It's our times. It's our culture that is out of step with the Bible. They don't match up. They don't agree. But it's people don't want to agree. Hell is real. It's a place of terror. It's a place of timelessness. Though some have cut hell out of their Bible in the manner of Jehoiakim, Jeremiah 36, 23, it still exists. It still exists. I remember an instructor of mine told me one time he was on a door-knocking campaign and a man came to the door and they began to talk about salvation. They began to talk about baptism. And the man said that the Bible does not say that we have to be baptized in order to be saved. He said, let's read 2 Peter 3.21. And they read it, and right before his eyes, the man took his Bible, tore that page out of it, and says, my Bible doesn't say that. That's what Jehoiakim did. But that doesn't mean God's Word is still not God's Word. Hell is a real place. Famed author C.S. Lewis said, there is no doctrine I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, speaking of hell if it lay in my power. He said, but it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and has the support of reason. Absolutely it does. Jesus believed in and taught the fact that there is an endless hell that will be filled with lost souls. There is no departure from that. That's why He left the comfort and the glory of heaven to come and to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why He came in to, to live and die in a world that was full of shame. He left the ivory palaces of heaven to be born in a smelly barn, Luke 2.7. He left the singing of angels for the cursing of men, Mark 15, 29.
Did He do that for no reason? Did He do that because there is no eternal hell? He left eternal hell or eternal life to be crucified, to be buried, and to be raised again. Did He do all of that because there is no eternal hell? Jesus taught about a timeless hell. He taught about a place with gates, Matthew 16, 18. And He taught of this place of which He holds the keys, Revelation 1, 18. There is a timeless hell. Consider these four phrases. Everlasting punishment. Eternal life. Everlasting God. And eternal spirit. The word translated everlasting and eternal in these passages where this is found is a form of the Greek word ion, ios. What does that mean? It means eternal, everlasting, without end, never to cease. If hell is not eternal, heaven is not eternal. We can't have it both ways. If, heaven, if hell does not exist, heaven does not exist. If hell is not eternal, heaven is not eternal. If hell's fire ceases to exist after a thousand years, so does the light of heaven's comfort come to an end. If hell's darkness is dispelled in a million years, heaven goes dark at that time. If hell's screams cease in a billion years, the singing of angels Cease at that time. However, we know that's not the truth. We know none of that is true. We believe in an eternal hell for those who do not want to be saved. We know it's eternal. Why? Because the Bible teaches that in ages behind us there was an eternal God. There has never been a time when God was not. And there will never be a time when God will not be. He is eternal, never ending, no beginning and no end. He was from eternity. He's been everlasting and He will be throughout everlasting, Psalm 91 through 2. We know hell is real and it is eternal because Jesus taught that. He described it as a place impossible to leave. Remember the great gulf? Lazarus could not return to the rich man because... There was this great gulf fixed. It's eternal because the fire is unquenchable. Matthew 3 verse 12. Unquenchable means it never stops. It's always going to be there. Hell is a timeless place because there's no departure. But it is a timeless terror because of darkness. That's what hell is. Full of darkness. There is never any light in hell. The flames of fire never produce light. It's a place of darkness. How many people in the world are afraid of the dark? I think if, if, if we would admit to it, I think most people are afraid of the dark. Someone says, well, I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm just afraid of what's in it. I'll agree with that. I'll go along with that. But the fear is still the result of darkness. Have you ever feared going down the wooded path in the middle of the day? I can recall one time when I was about 14, we lived about a mile off the highway. And my dad thought it would be funny 
if at about 9 o'clock one night, it was dark outside, I could walk from the highway home. And so he had been kind of joking me a little bit about being afraid of the dark. And of course, at that time in my life, I knew a whole lot more then than I know now. And I told him, I said, I'm not afraid, I can do it. He said, there's no way you can do it. So by the time we got to the turnoff, I had talked myself and him into me getting out of the car and walking a mile to my house. That was one of the worst mistakes I ever made in my life. I was scared to death. I didn't know you could run a mile in one minute. I was scared to death of the dark. Or maybe it was the things in the dark. But it was still the darkness. Darkness does not appeal to us. We want to be able to see where we are, where we're going, where we've been, right? We want to be able to see. Hell is described as a place of darkness. Darkness is found 200 times in the New Testament. And night is found 312 times. Now we do not have to read very far in the Bible to read about darkness, do we? At the creation, all was dark. In the beginning, there was darkness, Genesis 1 verse 2. And then when God made light, He separated the darkness from the light, Genesis 1, 3 through 5. There was a plague of darkness in Egypt, wasn't there? One that you could feel the darkness upon you. While heaven is a place, is a city of light, where evil men full of darkness will never enter. Revelation 21, 27 and chapters 22. Darkness is not going to inhabit heaven. We don't have to worry about having the sun because we have God. We don't have to have an artificial light because we have the light. God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. James 1.17 So it stands to reason that a God-forsaken place would be dark. But I want us to notice it isn't simply darkness. Peter said it is the mist of darkness. I didn't even realize that until I began this study. Peter said to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. 2 Peter 2, 17. That figure is found nowhere else in the New Testament. It is only used at this one time and it suggests a very uncomfortable and eerie fog. That's upsetting and disturbing to think about, isn't it? It's been described as the chilling horror accompanying darkness. Barnes noted that the word rendered mist means properly muskiness, thick gloom, darkness. And the phrase mist of darkness is designed to denote intense darkness or the thickest darkness. It reminds the reader of the darkness of the ninth plague of Egypt, doesn't it? One where it could be felt, Exodus 10, 21. But it isn't only mist of darkness, it is blackness of darkness. Jude wrote, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever, Jude 13. That can be translated the blackest darkness, something that we can't even realize in this life. Not only is it the blackness of darkness, it is outer Darkness. Didn't Christ warn us? He said, And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. 
There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 25, verse 30. That suggests that hell is the furthest place that you can be from the light. That's terrible. However, we know that Jesus defeated the dark side, didn't He? He defeated the darkness and Satan. Luke recorded for us a fact that is not mentioned by the other biographers. In Gethsemane, Jesus said to the man who came to arrest him, Luke twenty-two fifty-three, He said, This is your hour in the power of darkness. Jesus' death was the time when His enemies, both Satan and the Jews alike, were allowed to do their most evil work. They were allowed to do the worst that they could do. They gave their all the best effort they could to extinguish the light of the world, John 8, 12. They did their best to extinguish the one who was the true light, the one which lighteth every man coming into the world, John 1, 9. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to stop the light. They loved darkness. They don't want light. And they didn't want Jesus. But His light was rekindled at His resurrection, wasn't it? And because of that, we can know the truth about hell. We can understand what we need to understand about hell, and we need to do that if we're going to be in heaven one day. Hell is timeless because there is no parture. It is a place of darkness. But it is also a timeless terror because it is a place of discernment, though. It's a place of unforgiving memory. Unforgiving memory. Lazarus remembered the rich man, and the rich man certainly remembered Lazarus. The, the, the rich man remembered the life that he lived. He remembered the comforts that that life gave to him. He remembered all of those things. He remembered his father and his house. He remembered his five brethren. He remembered their the fact that they had hardened hearts and they needed to repent. He could remember all of that. He remembered the, the water-cooled mercy and what it was. He may have even heard John preach about hell. Luke 3, verse 7. Unlike in hell, memory will intensify the joys of heaven. See, that's so wonderful, isn't it? It will embitter the pangs of hell, though, and it is proven that memory can be a curse. The condemned will remember every prayer prayed, every plea presented, every advantage arranged, every exhortation extended, every class conducted, and every opportunity offered. They will remember all of it. I think the most dreadful torment of the lost is the fact which constitutes their state of torment, their state of lostness. I think it will be the coming to themselves when it's too late for repentance. I believe that's exactly what Peter was talking about when he warned this, 2 Peter 2, 20-22. He said, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than to, having known it, 
to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb. A dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, having been washed, to her wallowing in the mire. You have the memory of the prayers, of the pleas, of the exhortations, of the opportunities, all that were passed by. Hell is a timeless terror because it is a place of no departure. It is a place of utter darkness, a place of discernment, but it is also a place of detection. It is a place of unobstructed vision. Unobstructed vision. The rich man could see others in comfort. He could see Lazarus in the bliss of Abraham's bosom while he was shut out. Luke 16.23 Men in prison spend countless hours looking through their bars of confinement into the free world. Into the place where they long so much to be. Yet they can't have it. Ancient prisoners were sometimes tortured and slowly starved to death while a banquet of food was just outside of their reach. You can see it, but you can't have it. That's what hell is. Hell has a similar aspect, though. One wrote this, If there be one thing in hell worse than the other, it will be seeing the saints in heaven. Husband, there is your wife in heaven, and you are among the damned. And do you see your father? And your child is before the throne? And you, accursed of God and man, are in hell. Perhaps the greatest misery that is hell is that it is a timeless place of desperation. Desperation. There's nothing we can do. How many people throughout history have sat in front of a doctor or some kind of a physician in a room while family members sat around quiet as stone and they heard the words, there's nothing we can do? I understand that. And as I know many of you do, that is a sense of hopelessness that's very difficult to overcome. Perhaps... The two saddest words in the human language are no hope. No hope. With with that, with no hope, comes some other feelings, right? You have feelings of disbelief, denial, frustration, anger, infuriation, helplessness, and depression. All of that is one tries to make sense of those two words, no hope. That's such a feeling of helplessness to hear that. You mean to tell me, doctor, there is nothing that we can do with the advancements in medicine and science? You can't save my loved one? You must be kidding me. That's what no hope is. It's hard to even understand that, isn't it? No hope. Still, We're not without hope when we hear those words in this life. Don't we still have friends and family members to love and to be loved by? We have those people who who want to be able to do something for us and perhaps we can enjoy that relationship until it is over. 
perhaps having the opportunity to say things that we might not have said otherwise? And don't we always have the hope of an eternal reunion with those whom we love if we are faithful? See, we still have hope in this life, but hell doesn't have that. The blackness and the darkness and the endlessness of hell has no hope. Jesus told of a true hopeless and helpless man, didn't He? The rich man in Hades who desperately needed relief, but there was none to be found. His hopelessness was because his requests were never heard. They were never answered. Cell phone users today, we have become accustomed to dead spots, haven't we? You're driving along and then you lose connection. You may even be in a place where there is no connection. You may be in a life and death situation and the phone does you absolutely no good. The rich man was in the ultimate dead spot. His meter had no bars on it. He asked for one drop of water. As far as I can tell, it's been about 2,000 years and he hasn't had the least bit of moisture on that tongue that burned so much. Not answered. That's hopeless. We don't want that. We don't need that. As far as I can tell, his prayers were not answered. It wasn't because his requests were impossible in this life. His first request was one of supplication for himself. We're asked to go before God in supplication, to ask for the things we need. That's what he was doing. Is that so wrong? See, we have hope in this life. We can do that. He wanted Abraham to have mercy on him. Let Lazarus bring me a drop of water, verse 23 through 26. There's nothing wrong with that. We're instructed to do that, 1 Timothy 2, 1. We're, we're instructed to ask for our necessities in life, such as our daily bread, Matthew 6, verse 11. His second prayer was an intercessory petition on behalf of someone else. Nothing wrong with that. We're supposed to do that, right? He asked Lazarus, or asked Father Abraham, he said, please send Lazarus back to my brethren. I don't want them to come here. I don't want them to be where I am. He, he remembered their spiritual needs and the salvation that they so would wish they had gotten when they had the opportunity. Intercessory prayers usually meet with God's approval, don't they? Remember Abraham prayed for Lot's family when they were headed toward a fiery end? Genesis 18, 23 through 32. Samuel cried unto the Lord all night for a sinner named Saul. 1 Samuel 15, 11. The great prophet Jeremiah stood before God to turn away his wrath from sinners. Jeremiah 18, 20. Paul's prayer to God for Israel was that they might be saved. Romans 10, 1. We're to use all means to save the lost, and that would include prayer. 1 Corinthians 9, 22. The great man Samuel, he thought it was a sin not to pray for others. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you, 1 Samuel 12, 23. That wasn't 
an impossible task in this life. That wasn't why his prayers weren't answered, why his petitions were ignored. Many people have uttered similar prayers, wanting relief from pain, wanting something, and through the medicine and the practices that we have today, they received that. And maybe someone like Lazarus offered up those praise prayers on behalf of someone, intercessing for them. God's promise to reward one who gives a cup of cold water to one in need? That'll happen. Matthew 10.42 Is that not the perfect parallel to this account? In this life, would Lazarus not have been blessed by offering up a cup of cold water to this man? It wasn't answered because it was for the fact it lacked fervency. This was a fervent prayer. Remember, hell is a place of fervency, right? A great desire for something. His prayer was no ritualistic chanting prayer that the... uh, Pharisees were guilty of praying? No! He had a desperate blood, sweat, and tears. I'm on fire right now. Plea to God. He was fervent. The effectual fervent prayer availeth much. James 5.16 But not in hell. Not in hell. Don't you think it is interesting as far as we can tell that the rich man learned to pray in hell? We don't read about him praying to God in this life, do we? We think about people learning to pray as children, perhaps in family devotionals, vacation Bible school, or Bible class. Perhaps an adult learns how to pray by sitting in the worship assembly and hearing other men pray. But never in hell. Learning to pray in hell? Sinners may scoff at prayer now, but there will come a time when they will pray. They will beg. They will plead. They will ask for relief. There, It has been said that there are no atheists in foxholes and there are no prayerless sinners in hell. But since hell is God forsaken, the omnipresent God that we worship, He won't be there. He won't be there to listen to one scream and beg and plead and sob for mercy. That ought to terrify us. Oh, the desperation of one whom God answereth no more. 1 Samuel 28, verse 6. One day when Vice President Calvin Coolidge was presiding over the Senate, a senator angrily told another, to go straight to hell. The offended senator complained to Coolidge as presiding officer, and Coolidge looked up from the book he had been thumbing through and leafing through while listening to the debate. I've been looking through the rule book, he said. You don't have to go. What a thought. You don't have to go. You don't have to be there. The rich man did not have to go to hell either. No one who has ever lived or is living or or will live has to go to hell. God wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2, 4, 2 Peter 3, 9. 
The most wonderful news is that Christ came to earth to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.10 And He's calling unto calling us unto Him, isn't He? We know that, Matthew 11.28 And if we will respond, if we will respond, He administers the water of life freely. Revelation 22.17 Won't we respond to that wonderful call? How do we do that? We have to be a Christian. We have to obey the gospel. We have to do it the way Jesus has set forth in the Scripture. Faith in Him, repentance, confession that He is the Son of God, immersion in water to wash those sins away, to keep us from the terror and timelessness of hell. Sometimes we mess up and we we slip up and we, we fall back into the world and that puts us in danger of being in hell. We have to repent of those things. We have to make confession of what we've done is wrong. Whether to God privately or whether we need to do that publicly. We still need to do it. But it will save us from hell. Often, many people are a little bit embarrassed to make that walk. And if you're, especially if you're sitting far from the front, that looks like a very long walk, doesn't it? As the song is being sung and and you're thinking of the terrors of being lost, it's not very long. Now what's long is hell. It doesn't end. No one looks down upon a repenting person who has fallen back into sin. We rejoice just as the angels do. If you have need to answer this invitation, let's do that as we stand, as we sing our praises to God, Let's respond to the call of Jesus as we stand and sing. Is thy heart right with God? Dost thou count all things for Jesus but loss? Is thy heart right with God? Is thy heart bright with God? Washed in the crimson flood, cleansed and made holy, humble and lowly, right in the sight of God. Hast thou dominion or self or nor sin? Is thy heart right with God? Lord, for love evil without and within, Is thy heart right with God? Is thy heart right with God? Washed in the crimson flood, Cleansed and made holy, humble and lowly, Right in the sight of God. Are all thy powers under Jesus' control? Is thy heart right with God? Does he each moment abide in thy soul? Is thy heart right with God?
Washed in the crimson flood, cleansed and made holy, humble and lowly, right in the sight of God. I believe that we may have a couple in the audience that may need to partake of the Lord's Supper. We do. So if you would please, uh, you can sit. We'll sing number 502, 502.